Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, folks. This is Gene Bosler, your host. This is Episode 8 of the Gene Bosler Show, formerly called Anarcho-Environmentalism. Today is Sunday, May 30th, 2010, and I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, Stefan Kinsella. Are you there, Stefan? I'm here. Glad to be here, Gene. Thanks for coming on. Uh, let me read uh, Stefan's uh, profile on Wikipedia. Uh, Kinsella is General Counsel of Applied Optoelectronics Incorporated of Sugarland, Texas, a practicing intellectual property attorney and former adjunct professor of law at South Texas College of Law, where he taught computer law. Kinsella is actively involved with libertarian legal and political theory and is adjunct scholar of the Mises Institute, as well as the former book review editor for the Institute's Journal of Libertarian Studies. He is also a contributor to the News and Opinion blog at lewrockwell.com and is the creator of Libertarian Papers, a peer-reviewed online journal published under the Creative Commons Attributions 3.0 license. He writes that after college, he, quote, began to put more emphasis on Austrian economics and paleo-libertarian insights of Rothbard, Hans-Hermann Hoppe, and Rockwell, end quote. Kinsella's legal publications include books and articles about patent law, contract law, e-commerce law, international law, and other topics. Kinsella has also published and lectured on a variety of libertarian topics, often combining libertarian and legal analysis. Kinsella's views on contract theory, causation and the law, intellectual property, and rights theory, in particular his estoppel theory, are his main contributions to libertarian theory. In contact, contract theory, he extends Murray Rothbard's and Williamson Evers' title transfer theory of contract, linking it with inalienability theory while also attempting to clarify that theory. Title transfer theory of contract, uh, Kinsella sets forth a theory of causation that attempts to explain why remote actors can be liable under libertarian theory. He gives non-utilitarian arguments for intellectual property being incompatible with libertarian property rights principles. He advances the discourse ethics argument for the justification of individual rights using an extension of the concept of estoppel. Welcome to the show, Stefan. Thanks very much, Gene. Okay. Here at uh, environmental, um, anarcho-environmentalism, uh, we, namely I, argue that there are indeed real environmental concerns out there. Uh, we argue that... Um, air pollution, water pollution, etc., are indeed real environmental concerns, that um, global climate change ain't one of them, and that um, market and voluntary solutions are preferable to government or policy-based solutions. Um, I guess my first question for you is, uh, as a as an expert in patent law, do you think the existence of patent law is really nothing more than just one more way government runs block for favored and well-connected market participants by protecting environmentally irresponsible means and methods of production? And uh, if so, does this not logically follow that patent law harms the environment? Well, that's an interesting connection. I mean, I've um, for years now I've been trying to make. Um, um, trace out all the harms from patent law. 
Um, environmentalism is not one I've made yet. I, 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 I could see that there could some arguments could be made. Uh, I do think that uh, patent law is a type of protectionism, similar to minimum wage law and antitrust law, um, sort of counterintuitively, and uh, that they do protect the larger companies. Uh, for example, um, you know most of the smaller entrants to to, to businesses or to, or to new markets uh, don't have a large patent portfolio or the ability to get it. But you get these large established market participants. You know they amass large patent portfolios, and what this does is it basically protects them from suits from each other. Because if you know if I be, if, if one guy sues another guy, then they can be countersued based upon the other guy's portfolio. So you can think of these guys as big porcupines, right? They all have large defensive quills, but they're sometimes afraid to sue each other. Or they do sue each other, and then they, they all come up with a, a settlement, and they, they cross-license to each other their patents. Of course, what this does is it lets them keep, keep operating. Now, they pay a hefty fee to do this. They pay a lot of fees to lawyers and the patent office, but they get these monopolies to practice that basically – Isolates and insulates this kind of, you know, cartel. A, a new market entrant has no protection. He has no porcupine quills. So basically, he's at the mercy of all these established cartels, and it's much harder to get into the new market. Um, how this leads into environmental uh, uh, abuse, I'm not quite sure. I'd be open to the argument. So uh, it, this is why, um, let's say I were to. Uh, pepper my one-acre property in um, uh, wind-whipped Cypress, Texas, with windmills and solar panels and backfeed it into the grid. Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly I would be um, find myself providing energy for my next-door neighbor and then everyone on the street and then everyone on the HOA. They'd put a stop to me right quick, even though I wasn't actually polluting anything, they have the, – the energy companies have a monopoly on the provision of energy. Is that not correct? Well, um, certainly the energy market is heavily regulated. In some ways, it's le- less regulated than it used to be, but certainly there's not a completely free market in the pr- provision of energy. So, um, yeah, I would agree, agree with you to that extent that, that you know, you can't just uh, – that's another yet another limit on the ability of uh, small companies and small entrepreneurs to come up with, you know, new ideas and – and uh, and disruptive services and to enter into these kind of markets. Okay, well, I want to state that uh, say here that Block and Rothbard both posit the view that government protective legislation uh, serves to provide a green light for industry to pollute with the impunity, and this is consistent with what you say about patent law. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, providing uh, similar protection. So even without any further deeper study, I do see some basic level consistencies with, with uh, those two positions. Um, i got another question for you since we're on the topic of patents. Um, are those people merely conspiracy theorists who claim that there are patents sitting on shelves for all manner of human-friendly and environment-friendly technologies from um, 200 mile per gallon carburetors to Tesla ionospheric energy capture technology, etc. Are these people just conspiracy theorists, or is there, in your opinion, some substance to these claims? 
Well, um, in a word, yes. Uh, they're basically uh, ignorant conspiracy, conspiracy theorists. Um, I understand their skepticism. I understand the motivation to distrust the establishment and the entire patent system. Um, but the, the essence of a patent is that it's a public document. So if there's a patent on something, it's you can look it up right now in the patent database. Um, and so if there were 200-mile-per-gallon carburetor inventions out there that were being kept off the market – um, by some patent power of some patent holder, at least we would know about it. Now there are some. Um, there is the ability of the military, the government, to, uh, you know, when you submit a patent application to the patent office, it's done um, in secret, and before you can file it in another country, you have to get permission from the U.S. government. So what they do is, you submit a patent to the government, to the PTO in in, in, uh, in, in D.C. Virginia area. And the first thing they do is they send it to the NSA and all these secret groups, and they, they, they review it first to make sure there's nothing really that they want to get their hands on, right? No nuclear technology or something something extremely um, useful to the military or dangerous for other people to find out about. Uh, if they find that, which is rare, then they would send a, a secrecy order to the, uh, to the applicant and tell these guys, look, we're taking over this idea. We're going to pay you some money, and you have to keep quiet about it and – too too bad, so sad, but thanks for filing it. Now, that is really rare, but that wouldn't be a patent. That would just be someone's idea that the government has told them, you better keep this quiet, and we're going to you know, keep a cap on it. Uh, but the normal process is you file the patent. You get your permission to publish from the government after it passes the review of these, uh, of these other agencies, and then it becomes published at 18 months after you file it. And so it's public to the world, even if you don't get a patent on it. So um, uh, you know, I think th this is the type of conspiracy theory that undermines the credibility of libertarianism, in, in my opinion. Excellent. Okay, just to be clear, you, you're, you're opposed to this, uh, this federal government's first right of refusal, right? And oh, absolutely. Just... Well, uh, absolutely. I'm opposed to the entire patent system in the first place. I mean, um, I'm opposed to the federal government existing, and the federal government is a criminal organization, so – um, you know, in fact, from an environmentalist point of view, I, I, I mean, I'm hesitant to say I'm an environmentalist because of the connotations and baggage and socialist uh, and private property ignorant undertones of a lot of social, of a lot of environmentalism. However, uh, of course, if you were in favor of the environment, the last agency you would tr entrust to protect it is the is any government, especially the United States uh, central government. Yes, I understand that the the um, the hesitation, the reluctance to uh, take seriously anything that has the term or the stamp of environmentalism on it. Mm -hmm. I would um, I would um, direct your attention to Block, who stated in an, in an essay called um, something something like the case for free market environmentalism. He said, mm -hmm. oh, it's called Environmentalism and Economic Freedom, the Case for Private Property Rights by Walter Block. He states... Um, before making this seemingly quixotic endeavor, we must be sure we are clear on both concepts. Environmentalism may be non-controversially defined as a philosophy that sees great benefit in clean air and water and to a lowered rate of species extinction. Environmentalists are particularly concerned with the survival and enhancement of endangered species, such as trees, elephants, rhinos, and whales, and with noise and dust pollution, oil spills, greenhouse effects, and the dissipation of the ozone layer. Note, this version of environmentalism is a very moderate one. Moreover, it is purely goal-directed. It implies no means to those ends whatsoever. 
in this perspective, environmentalism is, in principle, as much compatible with free enterprise as it is with its polar opposite, centralized governmental command and control. End quote. Um, basically, he goes in and he describes the various types of environmentalists from the uh, watermelons who are green on the outside, red on the inside, who actually see environmentalism as a movement, no, nothing more than a means to, the, to achieve their world socialistic ends. He also talks about true greens who believe that humans are the blight on the planet, and in order to save the planet and all life on Earth, the species has to check out. And he and Rothbard both note that they are never the ones to volunteer their kids to check out first. Right, and I, I and I've read almost everything Roth, uh, Walter's written. In fact, I I, I I set up and I run his website for him, and uh, I agree with almost everything Walter says, and I agree with that. Um, although that may be a slightly uncharitable characterization of some libertarian environmentalists. Um, I mean, you know, in a, in a strict sense, I would say I'm an I'm an environmentalist, and so are all libertarians in the sense that their policies, if followed, would of course optimize the ability of environmentalists to protect their values and achieve their values, and also it will protect the environment itself. Um, now, the, the particular goals, I think Walter's right that we have to focus on means and ends, and that if your goal is to minimize the reduction in species and things like this, you know, that as long as you choose peaceful means, it can be compatible with libertarianism. I don't think it is libertarian itself. That is, it's not implied by libertarianism. I personally don't have a strong desire to prevent species from going extinct. I mean, if you understand the history of, of the Earth, this has been going on for uh, millions and millions of years, and uh, it's a natural part of life that some species evolve into life and some you know, go extinct. Um, and I think man is as natural part of life as anyone else. Uh, that said, I don't think the government should be <laughs> involved in um, interfering one way or the other with these processes. And uh, um, you know, I, I think that uh, a proper environmentalism has to strictly respect property rights. Good, that's our position. That, that, that through the strict um, application and defense of private property rights, um, all environmental concerns boil down strictly to torts. And if if it can't be boiled down to tort that it then basically it ain't a real environmental concern. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is Rothbard's it, position. Go ahead. I don't know. Well, I mean, a couple of recent examples. Obviously, the um, the BP spill. Now, I, I I cannot say whether this was a result of government intervention. Although, you know, ideally in a in a government free world, we would be about a hundred times richer, and presumably, you know, with with a lot more wealth at our disposal, many more safety devices would be used in all kinds of activities. So these kinds of things would be probably less likely to happen anyway. But the $75 million cap that Congress granted the industry 10, 15, 20 years ago when they did this, um, which BP is apparently going to ignore and pay claims anyway, uh, that cap obviously was unlibertarian. Although it's not libertarian for the government to step in and enforce tort claims either. So you know you can't say that uh, you can't say that the $75 million cap should be abolished in the sense that the state should hold BP liable for all the tort claims because what you're doing is favoring one criminal mafia, which is the government, um, you know, going out to pursue justice on behalf of all the people that it rapes and pillages on a daily basis. 
Right, which is a, a complete, you know, logical fallacy. Exactly. Uh, Rothbard discusses this somewhat in Law, Property Rights, and Environmentalism, which, as you noted, uh, preparing for this interview, um, you may not have read in a few years, but he does talk about the illegitimacy, not as it pertains to the environment, but uh, particularly, but uh, the illegitimacy in general of class action lawsuits. If I um, am not even aware of this class action. And, and then yet am bound by its outcome. Uh, exactly. Do you, do you agree with, with Do you agree with Rothbard on that? Well, I can't say I agree completely. Um, I mean, I, I don't disagree with him. I think it was a it, it's a provocative idea he had. Rothbard was so broad sweeping in his um, the scope of what he covered, and he sometimes you know went without a net, and he sometimes ventured into areas that not many people had talked about before. And so I think sometimes he just you know blurted out what his view was, and he could only give so much attention to all these views. And I think class actions was one that he you know he he gave a reasonable sort of first approximation approach to. I am not so sure that in a free market that a class action type idea would not emerge in some form. Number one, you could have you could have it done contractually, which I'm sure Rothbard would agree with. For example, you could have some kind of networks of uh, private defense agencies and insurance company agreements and inter- interagency agreements that basically provided for something like this. And if, if so, then that would be permitted. Inter-arbitration agency agreements included, yeah. Ab- absolutely. And number two, I mean, there are a lot of sort of practices that we frown upon now because they're established by the legislature, like the statute of limitations or class action lawsuits. But, you know, of course we can understand the idea behind them, and sometimes it makes a little bit of sense. Even trademark law, for example – um, you know, in my IP writings, intellectual property writings, most of my uh, fire is aimed at patent and copyright, which are the biggest uh, offenders. But even trademark and trade secret have big problems. And trademark, for example, um, although you could say that and one aspect of trademark could be um, justified on libertarian grounds, and that is the extent to which there's fraud being committed upon a consumer right, by, by a merchant. So let's say you you know you sell someone a fake Rolex watch, and you know, but you know this actually example proves that this almost never happens. I mean, the guys that buy Rolex watches on the street for ten dollars, they're not really being defrauded. They they know it's a fake Rolex watch, and the the seller knows it's fake, the buyer knows it's fake, so there's no fraud being occasioned upon the consumer. But you know you could say that let's say there's a really good knockoff. You know, merchant that succeeds somehow in getting a bunch of fake uh, Louis Vuitton purses and in the actual Louis Vuitton stores and Neiman Marcus in the in the Galleria or something. Um, I, I suppose you could imagine a case where the law evolves so that Louis Vuitton itself has the right to sue on behalf of the defrauded customers because they're mm-hmm. too diffuse to sue on their own. And you could sort of presuppose their consent, like they'd be outraged that they were ripped off, and they would all, you know, consent to Louis Vuitton being their agent to sue on their behalf. Now, I think this theory is a stretch, but you could see how some of these sort of uh, presumed consent uh, uh, causes of action might emerge. And I think something like uh, class actions could possibly emerge, but I'm not aware of any good work that's been done. Based upon solid libertarian principles, to argue in favor of class actions. Uh, so I would say that, uh, you know, barring that, and until someone comes up with one, and I don't, I don't have one. I would, I would tentatively go with Rothbard's 
uh, negative opinion about class actions. Right. Well, he considered a class action suit to be legitimate as long as all the parties involved kind of like know about it. And maybe even if, you know, he, he um, I think he cites the example of um, 200 and, uh, 292 polluters polluting the air in Los Angeles County, a county of 7 million inhabitants. And if if I'm one of those 7 million inhabitants and mm-hmm. I didn't know about the lawsuit, Mm-hmm. And I, uh, but but I, I would be required under current uh, under current or existing federal statutes to, I would be subject to the outcome of that suit. Right. I mean, uh, that means that I myself would never have recourse to sue one or some or all of the 292 polluters myself. So it seems to me like that protection actually helps to limit the liability of the polluter and actually because if you had an if you had the risk of an obscene number of lawsuits from an indeterminate number of complainants all of whose property had been um, <clears throat> had been trespassed by your polluted water or your polluted air then you would really have a much much stronger incentive to engage in uh, non-polluting methods of production, in my opinion. In, in the, the, well, so you know, th- that's int- I, I've never heard it put that way. There's something to that. I think it's possible. I mean, I think the state's uh, mechanisms mess up everything. But for example, something like what you're proposing is happening with the Google, the Google uh, Books, uh, this Google Print thing they're doing, where they're trying to digitize all the books. Yeah. So Google's, you know, they're worried about copyright liability, and so they actually wanted there to be a class action lawsuit, and it was instituted by a small group of librarians or something like that. And Google is happy to settle. They they just want a final judgment, right? And they know that once they get this final judgment, it's going to basically bind everyone who's in this class, even if they didn't officially join the class, and will basically immunize them from liability going forward. Now, in a way, that's a good thing in this particular case because copyright is problematic in the first place. But the point is they're using the class action kind of mechanism in their defense because no one else is going to be able to have the clout and the, the size and the stature of Google to go – negotiate the similar thing. So basically it would give them sort of a unique exemption from copyright liability to let them proceed with their Google print project, right? But, you know, the other complaint about class actions is usually the other way around. Like let's say um I mean I would say the typical libertarian complaint about it is that it violates the rights of the plaintiffs who are forced into it, not the rights of the defendant, the victim. Because right. you know uh, you say that the liability is lessened for the defendant, but it's not really because the plaintiffs who never actually joined in are considered to have joined in. So it, their, their damage is counted as part of the damage. Now, I know that one big lawsuit is less damaging than a hundred you know, smaller, a thousand smaller lawsuits, but still um, the, you know, the, the, the sum total of the damage is added up. But um, um, you know the, these individual plaintiffs who are left out. Uh, uh, you could argue that their rights are the ones that are violated. But this is why I, I mentioned the statute of limitations and things like this. The, I could see sort of rules evolving where, you know, there's notice given in newspapers. And you don't take advantage of your rights after a certain point of time. It's either practically or legally difficult to assert your rights once you've had a chance to do so. And if this was the venue to do it, and you didn't join in when you could have, and you didn't, you know, opt out. Then you know I don't know if this is the biggest libertarian travesty of all time, 
Probably uh, not. Now, but you do you do uh, um, agree with the with the supposition that statutes of limitations would likely emerge in a in a uh, market arbitration environment. Well, I mean, not technically because a statute is a you know a decree by legislature of a state. So of course, right. But the, but the concept would would likely emerge. The basic emerge. idea, I th- I think it would arise for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, well, it could arise it could arise by by virtue of these private agreements among. Um, uh, arbitration agencies, like I mentioned, but it could also arise just as a matter of practical necessity. Or, like, let's say, for example, um, in theory, let's say you have a legal system that recognizes the right that you own your property unless and until someone else shows up that has a better claim. Now, right. But the problem is there's a time limit on that because, you know, even if in theory some some long descendant of, a, of an Eskimo or, or you know, or some uh, Cro-Magnon from 75,000 years ago could show up and show that somehow, you know, you're on his ancestor's, you know, property that was taken from him and he has a, a legitimate claim to it. Basically, at a certain point in time, it's just impossible to gather the evidence needed to establish to prove your case. So at right. a certain point in time, um, it's going to be, as a practical matter, if nothing else, impossible to prove your claim. So after 100 years, 50 years, 500 years, something like that, it's going to be impossible. And I could imagine rules of thumb arising that say, listen, a strong burden of proof arises that the property of someone that holds it now is is valid property um, you know, it, after a certain period of time. And, and that's why I think property title insurance would would be a much bigger player on the market in a uh, in a free market. You would basically just have title companies. That would be their business. They would specialize in trying to find out who has a good claim to this property, and they would give insurance. And so, if you own a house, and you know some Native American can show that his ancestor owned it 240 years ago, uh, and you have to give your house up, then you get in, you know you get a reparations claim from your insurance agency, and you move on. All right. Okay. I don't want to go too far from my topic here, but this really, this really captures my interest here. You're familiar with agorism, correct? Absolutely. The, princi- the principle of uh, uh, the practical application of market anarchism and the and the uh, um, advo- advocate advocating the widespread use of black market and gray market activities, engaging in uh, in free exchange. Without including the state as a third party yes. hand snatcher in the transaction, you are familiar with that. Yes, or uh, I think a Rock, a Lou Rockwell or Murray Rothbard one time mentioned uh, the gray market or the black market, and they said, in other words, the free market. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That yeah. that's beautiful. I've never heard that. Yeah. Oh, you mean? Oh, in other words, you mean the free market? Right. Okay. Wherein, wherein, no, uh, no gang of thugs uh, um, extracts his uh, his um, pound of flesh off the top of any transaction. Right. Calling it a black market is it's almost a pejorative. It's implying there's something yeah. shady about it, right? It's like, well, it's a little shady because you have to be shady to get away from the government's, uh, you know, claws. But really, it just means the free market in operation. That's beautiful. Well, the reason I bring that up here is because you talk about um, uh, market insurance policies. Mm-hmm. Um, why not? We'll call it the the, the Kinsella and Bosler uh, Title Insurance Company. Why not start homesteading vast tracts of federally owned land and um, communally unowned ocean just 
on paper say, hey, here, everybody, claim your title. So that in 2012 or 2015 or 2020, when this whole pyramid, global pyramid collapses, people could have already established their claim to various uh, acres of land or water. Well, I mean... I know it would be a fun exercise. I know that it would have no... I, I, I'm not opposed to it. I think it's it would be one of many competing theories about how to deal with the disposition of assets. Well, no, the, the question would arise, whether are these assets that are actually owned right now by the federal government or are they not owned by the federal government? Now, arguably, the federal government asserts ownership claims, and at least with respect to forest lands and things like that, Right. They own them in the sense that they, they, you know, they, they physically prevent people from using them in ways that they don't permit. So, in a legal sense, the federal government is the owner of these things. Of the ocean, not so much. I mean, really, there's no strict ownership claims of the entire ocean established. Okay, but in the highly point. unlikely event of a total societal breakdown, mm-hmm. Armageddon, a la Gerald Salente, <laughs> and. Uh, in the government's, albeit uh, illegitimate under libertarian law, claims to ownership of these properties are unenforceable anyway, why not have already in place a um, title recording agency? Well, you could. You could. In fact, I, I, I propose with some of uh, my libertarian friends kicking it around before similar ideas about – Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and have a, a libertarian Nuremberg war crimes you know tribunal right now because we're going to have too many people to pass judgment upon when, when you know when our day comes so let's go ahead and decide now get the go ahead and get them decided so let's go ahead and decide George Bush's fate and Dick Cheney's fate and so that you know when the day and, and all the librarians who work for the government what, what was their fate for taking government money and you know uh, policemen and school employees and you know, let's go ahead and make a decision. But I mean, in a way, these armchair exercises. Uh, I mean, what's the point? The only point of this would be to build your argument up and be ready to present it to who? To people that are willing to listen to reason. And in my opinion, that's only going to be useful if we if we achieve anarchy in a peaceful process of of illumination. And that is not not as the result of some societal breakdown, because I think the result of societal breakdown would not be good right now because we would just get something even worse. Um, the federal government might go away, but you know the reason the federal government exists now is because most people have the delusion that the federal government is legitimate and that the state is legitimate and that institutionalized violence is legitimate. And I don't think that that delusion will disappear when the state disappears. You know, They'll just be ripe for the next demagogue or something like that. So I don't think any of these claims would do any good because who, who you're going to address them to, the next warlord that takes over? Um, now, on the other hand, if we do achieve anarchy by a peaceful process, a gradual evolutionary process of enlightenment where people become gradually more economically literate, for example, which could happen over time. But for example, right now most people are much more literate about the evils of communism than they were uh, 20 years ago. Right, Just the fall of Russia itself… Educated almost everyone to a degree, so it's possible that this can happen even without formal education. So, if we achieve anarchy the peaceful way, it will only be with a gradual enlightenment of the human, you know, species. Basically, we'll become more and more libertarian in our thinking. And if that happens, then of course these people will be more susceptible to libertarian arguments and to 
the question, what do we do with the state parks? What do we do with the roads? What do we do with the assets that are held by the government that we've now disbanded? Who do we give them to to do justice? Right? Do we give them to the to the to the neighboring people? Do we give them to the taxpayers? Do we give them to the victims of bombings in Iraq? Who's the first claimant on these resources? But I don't think it would be the guys that wrote a you know who who filled out a book on a website that said I stake my claim to to you know <laughs> Yellowstone. Do do mainly serve as a as a. Um is a means of furthering an argument. We're speaking with Stefan Kinsella, libertarian legal theorist. And uh, Stefan, you just uh, got done stating that uh, through gradual uh, human enlightenment are we going to achieve anarchy. It sounds like a generations-long process. Might I posit at least the claim that if we overcame a few a few obstacles like uh, state-funded edu- or state-monopolized education? that there may be a few obstacles that might speed along that process. I agree with you. I, I, I and, and, and you know, in my wish list sometimes when I'm asked, you know, what is the uh, the worst thing that is in society or the worst thing the government does or the first thing I would choose to to change if I could. <clears throat> I mean, there's a long list of things that you would choose you would change first if you could. It could be uh, abolishing the outrageous and immoral and evil drug laws. Uh it would be abolishing the uh, income tax. Um, but I think if I had to choose one thing, it would be abolishing um, all involvement of the government in education. Uh, that would be the first thing I would change probably because I think that is the primary way that the government indoctrinates society and creates cannon fodder and Democrat zombies who go around saying that, you know, if you don't like it here, leave. or you know, they'll Creates say, idolaters to the state. Yeah, uh, the, you know, they say, more. well, you know, I know it's bad, but we got the right to vote. We we are the government. You know, they say all this bullshit. You hear it over and over and over again, you know, and uh, you can almost predict what their answer is to something you say. Especially here in Texas. Well, I think so, but, you know, I, I see it everywhere I go. Wow. Um, you know, you can – someone should write an article on the on the expected programmed responses to arguments like, you know, if you don't, you shouldn't vote because your vote is, your vote is wasted. And of course, the the automatic response is, but if everyone thought that, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, um, you know, so there's just a litany of things that they learn on these Saturday morning cartoons and and in the government schools. Um, I want to ask a, another question regarding uh, free market environmentalism. Is nuclear energy, as we know it today, merely a stepping stone on the way to other forms of energy that may soon emerge on the free market horizon? Well, I, I'm an electrical engineer background. I'm a patent attorney, um, so I have some familiarity with this. I can't be, claim to be an expert on this and to predict what's going to happen. And, of course, the government has heavily distorted the energy industry, including the nuclear industry, uh, in both ways, in both terms of subsidies in the past um, from you know corporate, uh, corporate subsidies and limitations of liability and in terms of um, the imposition of liability from outrageous uh, – uh, tort type awards and regulatory controls and things like this. Now, my opinion is that the only, the only uh, uh, mass scale source of energy in the world that is safe and clean is nuclear. Uh, the other would be natural gas and fossil fuels, but they're not necessarily safe or clean, although natural gas is somewhat clean. Um, and those are going to someday run out unless the abiogenic theories are correct, which I'm not convinced that they are. 
soft sources of energy are fine to a degree. They shouldn't be subsidized by the state, of course, um, which they are now. But there will never be anything more than a, a drop in the bucket. Now, you'll have the environmentalists say, well, we should conserve more. Well, that's nonsense. Energy is life, right? We need more energy. Energy feeds production. And so nuclear is the – I think we should go 100% nuclear in my opinion. Uh, well, I think the free market should be allowed to go 100% nuclear. nuclear if the market were, were unfettered, that's what it would do, you say? That's my opinion, yes. I think okay. it certainly would. I think nuclear would be by far the most prevalent. It would probably provide almost all of our – now, this is especially if the pollution of uh, caused by uh, fossil fuels uh, was, was internalized and not externalized. Now, if, if fossil fuels were the only fuel source available to us, I think we should use it. It's better to have somewhat polluting energy than to have none. Okay, but we do have nuclear, which would be just almost a perfect energy source. And I'm talking about fission, and you know, yeah, there's some nuclear waste, but it can be dealt with. At least it's localized, and it doesn't go into your lungs, and we know what to do with it. Um, now, down the road, will there be other types of nuclear that use the actual waste itself? There, there's promising research with thorium, and um, there's a, you know the possibility thorium with a th, correct? Yes, thorium. Yeah. And then there's a possibility of, um, of even fusion. But the problem is that, that, that environmentalists, whenever you, this is another one of these programmatic things. If you mention nuclear fission, they'll say, well, I'm in favor of nuclear, but nuclear fusion. But they know that this is 100 years away. So they're just coming up with something to pretend like they agree, but they don't really agree. right? So in other words, for real human life here and now and for the next five generations, they're not in favor of any clean – um, uh, you know, mass source of energy. And, and by the way, this is my litmus test for environmentalists. Uh, if, if if someone claims to be an environmentalist and they're not in favor of nuclear power, then in my opinion, either they're an idiot, they're ignorant, or they're evil. They're misanthropic. In other words, they really want humanity to starve off because of lack of energy, or they had, they knew nothing about physics and uh, engineering and technology, in, in which case they should really be quiet and just read their papers. Or they are of the camp that environmentalism is merely a tool to be used to advance to further the cause of world socialism. The right, which is misanthropic, right, which I view as misanthropic. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. um, but certainly, what, what is your view about nuclear power? Well, I, I think that uh, in a free market, there'd be a whole hell of a lot more nuclear uh, power plants all mm-hmm. over the world. Mm-hmm. And that um, in a free market... Um, I, I, I again view uh, nuclear energy as a stepping stone to other 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 methods. Mm-hmm. I also feel that the nuclear waste argument that uh, that, that this stuff never breaks down is akin to Carl Sagan, who had to admit his his uh, um, apocalyptic predictions about the Kuwait oil oil fires uh, the, uh, were incorrect and that in just a short amount of time i can't remember when carl sagan died but i remember him coming out saying something about well my dire predictions about the kuwait that the, the, the virtual nuclear winter that was going to be caused by the kuwait oil fires was incorrect and that the environment righted itself much more quickly than any of us uh, any of us uh, dooms, doomsday predictors had ever predicted and that's kind of my opinion about nuclear waste where it's a pretty clean energy as energies go and that markets and what uh, terry anderson calls enviropreneurs have ways of dealing with such things 
Well, okay. So first, first of all, I, it's bizarre that you have just an average consumer who's an environmentalist, and you know, when you mention nuclear power, they'll say, "Well, what do you do about the waste?" I mean, it's not really their business what you do about it. You know, that's that's an entrepreneurial problem. I mean, yeah. if, I, if I if I invite someone to dinner at my house, they don't say, "Well." What are you going to do with the with the waste of the dinner? What are you going to do with the bones? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, I'll figure it out. You know, it's up to me. It's my problem. It's not your problem. Yeah, I mean, and and not only that, the the volume of nuclear waste uh, pr- produced by nuclear power plants is so so many orders of magnitude smaller than what's produced by conventional processes that it is just such a, an easier problem to deal with. Not only that, nuclear power comes from radioactive materials that are already radioactive in the ground. We take them out. They're spread out all over the place. We take them out. We use them up. And now we know if we get rid of them, we know where they are now, right? So right. before they were in the ground, radioactive. Now they're back in the ground, radioactive, but we know they are where they are. Fourth of all, it's either high-level or low-level radioactive waste. If it's high-level, that means it's burning out at a fast rate, which means it's not going to be radioactive for very long. If it's low-level... It's going to last a lot longer, but it's not as much of a problem. And furthermore, right now, the regular energy production processes already generate low-level radioactive waste, even even coal and things like that. So, I mean, there are just so many ignorant views about nuclear power. Um, now, granted, it is too mixed up with the government, and it should be completely free. But humanity needs energy to survive, <laughs> and and that means nuclear. And in my opinion, we will go nuclear. There is no doubt about it. There is no debate. There is no stopping it. It's only a question of do we do it soon enough to stop tragedy or do we do it later? I mean, but we will go nuclear because there's no choice. So you state that uh, we will go nuclear not because I say it's a good idea, but because the simple economic laws dictate it. Yeah, I think the only way we won't go strongly nuclear is if there's more fossil fuels uh, than we were aware of, or the abiogenic theories are correct. Um, and, you know, we're just familiar with these shale oil extraction techniques and things like this for natural gas and other things. So it could be, but I still think they're inferior because it kills a lot more people with all these accidents uh, from, from transportation, uh, explosions, mining, uh, and not to mention pollution and going in people's lungs. Do you uh, support the idea of unilateral nuclear disarmament while we're on the topic of nuclear? Um, that, that's a difficult question. Um, my, my first answer is yes, because I don't trust the, I don't trust these governments that we have in place right now to uh, to have these weapons you know at their disposal. So, you know, my view would any any state that exists should disband, and any state that has nuclear nuclear weapons should get rid of them. So, I guess that would imply unilateral nuclear disarmament. I guess it's kind of pushing Rothbard's button, isn't it? How how trustful are you <laughs> that the other guy's not going to shoot him at you as soon as you do it? I well, mean, I certainly. That's... I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, I would I would prefer the United States territory to be free to govern itself, right? And uh, uh, would private defense agencies and insurance agencies of the people that live here develop deterrence against external statist nations? Yeah, I think they would, and they should be able to. So to me, nuclear disarmament means you know taking it away from states because exactly. states are nothing but big criminals. Well, uh, nuclear weapons are weapons of 
are designed to kill civilians. They could only be conceived of by the sick mind of the state. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think that's true. Uh, I, I don't think that as a libertarian you can say that nuclear weapons are per se aggressive or illegitimate. There are some imaginable uses of nuclear weapons that are peaceful. For example, we may maybe we should use a tactical nuke to stop this BP uh, thing in the Gulf, but of course no one would no one would ever consider that because that's not politically correct, right? I mean, even be politically if, correct. Well, I mean, you know, you have to weigh your options. If if that's the best solution, we should do it, right? <laughs> Or, uh, but uh, it would be terrible. But well, I, that would be a that would be a that, that would be the nuclear equivalent of dynamite or TNT, which is something that was invented, I guess, arguably for for uh, market sure. purposes and 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 you know pervertedly used for warfare. Sure. So you know, I can see the I can see the free market using uh, going from nuclear energy as a form of providing energy to a grid to using it to make an explosion for the tactical purposes of of you know whatever method or means of production or cleaning up whatever accident might arise on the on the part of the market well um, and, yeah, I, I agree with that possible possible invention on the market well and your your comment uh, calls to mind what we talked about earlier about like antitrust laws and these things i mean most people think of these things as being the government imposing a regulation on big business and the big business grumbling about it not liking it where in reality we know that basically it helps a lot of these big businesses by by uh, basically erecting barriers to competition well likewise i think in a way although the us has the biggest nuclear arsenal you know there's too many constraints to really using it so it's not that useful so right. they get this they get this uh nuclear disarmament or nuclear uh you can't use nukes mentality going and how does that help them because we're the only nation that really can build these conventional weapons, like like the ones we used in the uh, in the last Iraq war, like what they call the Moab, right, the mother of all bombs. Mm-hmm. They're conventional, they're dynamite, or something like that, right? But they have the yield of some of the early nuclear weapons. They're incredibly powerful, and no country in the world, almost except some of the superpowers, could even conceivably build these things, right? Except us, and yet we're permitted to use them because, well, it's not nuclear, right? So basically, we're the only nation that's permitted to use what's the equivalent of nukes because we prevented everyone from using the nukes that we have. Interesting. Do animals have rights? Uh, some of them do. Uh, humans do. So, <laughs> uh, but other than humans, I don't believe that uh, animals have rights. What is Aristotelian essentialist realism? <laughs> You got me there. The uh, concept of individual natural rights is most at home in a theory of reality that sees the world as a plurality of determinate classes or kinds of entities that act in accordance with their natures. Humans are one such class. An entity's nature established by what kind of thing it is is can either be realized to some degree or not. The more an entity's nature is realized, the more good we say it is. We speak of a good peach as a peach that has most fully realized its nature as a peach and has the best taste when one bites into it. I'm reading from the Journal of Libertarian Studies, Mm -hmm. um, Putting Humans First, Why We Are Nature's Favorite by Tabor McCann. How do you say his name? Tabor McCann, yeah. I, I, I find this interesting because the concept of animals having rights is at the forefront of some types of environmentalists' uh, argument. 
are, are, are you familiar with this whole idea yeah, of... Yeah, I'm close to Tibor, and I've read that piece, actually, and um, he, I know that he specifically himself has addressed... Well, he's he's more of a neo-Aristotelian type um, uh, libertarian philosopher, and he has addressed the animal rights claim himself. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, you know, I've, I've met... I, I mean, literally, I've met environmentalists, animal, or animal rightsers, I should say, you know, and if you push them, do rocks have rights? I mean, they said they looked at me in the eye and said, "Yes, rocks have rights." So, in other words, they have no conception of what rights means. They basically they're not really rigorous thinkers. Uh, most of the people I've, I'm talking about, the ones that will just sort of blithely say, "Yes, animals have rights," so do we, because they 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 associate the wrong characteristics with these entities that give them rights. I mean, basically, what they're saying is they like rocks. They like nature. You know. They don't have anything against this rock, um, and animals can feel pain, for example, which is you know one of the uh, the arguments. So we all feel pain. So that's the basis of rights. So I think they grab onto the wrong characteristics for rights, um, or or they conflate morals with rights, which is a typical thing of non-libertarians. Right? If they think um, something is bad or wrong, then it right away occurs to them that well, it must be a rights violation because they're willing to make a law. Based upon Interesting. The so that's the that's the premise behind people who who think okay they think that if it if it hurts then it must be a violation of rights well, yeah, somehow that was, or another. Uh, Peter Singer, right? I think that was his idea about it. It's based upon the idea of the capacity to feel pain. Um, you know, but other people base it upon just sort of a you know they they're kind-hearted people and they're kind to their pets. You know, they don't want to see animals unnecessarily suffer. And so they think it's wrong to torture an animal, which it probably is, um, and therefore the government should make a law about it because they have no they have no coherent theory about what the natural role of the government is, <laughs> what the proper the, role of rights are, right? So they just, you know, I asked my grandma one time, you know, do, do you believe people should do drugs? No, no, I, no. I said, do you think it should be uh, illegal to do drugs? Yes. Why not? Well, I don't think people should do that. So you know, it just they go right. Yeah, that's completely logical. You know, non sequitur. Okay, they see I get no that. difference between this is wrong and this should be illegal. But they don't realize that this should be illegal has a correlative that there's a right being violated somewhere, and they have no theory of rights to back it up. They just have their, you know, their preferences, their moral preferences or their value judgments about what they like and don't like or what's they think is wrong or wrong or, or, or right. Do you agree with Rothbard's position that we will assign rights to dogs and cats just as soon as they uh, write on a placard and and uh, agitate for them? Yes, I do. I think Leonard Peikoff had a similar thing about mosquitoes. Um, you know, he'll 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 give the mosquitoes rights when they ask for them. <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. that's a it's it's a it's a kind of a cute statement, but it, there's a grain of truth in it that you know they don't have the intelligence necessary to even ask for rights, um, which is correlated with their ability to respect our rights, which is the basis of rights, and in my opinion, other rights. It's, it's a correlative. It's a it's a uh, it's a relational thing, right? It's like I respect your rights, you respect mine. It's like an agreement. So morals by agreement, in a sense, right? So um, an animal cannot agree to respect your rights. That's why they don't have rights themselves. Although I don't claim to be an expert on this. This is uh, a little bit beyond what I claim to 
Okay. Well, as it pertains to environmentalism and our claim that environmentalist concerns are only solved through the rigorous protection and enforcement of private property rights, um, this does have, a, a, you know, this 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 is, uh, you know, on topic in that regard because we're talking about rights. Yeah. Um, and and I guess I guess do are there such things as collective rights or only individual rights? I, there's only individual rights. And is there such thing as as uh, collective property ownership, or I guess you know, I guess in a, in a, in an anarchistic society, there there's no reason why there couldn't be collective property ownership. I agree with that. I think there certainly could be collective ownership because people can act cooperatively. So of, of course there can be collective um, or cooperative action among people. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that the, that the that the collective agencies exist as some kind of separate entity with separate rights. <clears throat> the society or some community is only um, composed of individual human beings that themselves have rights. Are there such things as positive rights? I think there are such things as positive rights. Um, I think libertarians go a little bit um, astray when they so blithely say there's no positive rights. For example, if I contractually agree to do something… Now the person I've obligated myself to has a positive right to expect that I perform what I've uh, uh, promised to perform. So there can be a positive right as a result of a of a, of a contract, for example. Um, or if I commit a tort or a crime, I think there's a positive right on the behalf of the victim to expect remediation or compensation or even rescue. Let's let's say I, I maliciously push someone into a lake. Well, I think I have an obligation – who can't swim, let's say, who's drowning? Okay. I think I have an obligation to jump in the lake and rescue that person, right? So I created the obligation. So I would say there's no uncreated or unchosen positive obligations, and correspondingly there's no positive rights that don't correspond to such kind of uh, voluntarily chosen positive obligations. Now, I also believe that um, um, having children, for example, is a way of creating positive obligations… You voluntarily created a rights-bearing entity that by its nature has certain dependencies and needs, and I think that's analogous or akin to pushing someone in a lake. You know, Creating an infant that has certain needs and who would die without being cared for is akin to pushing someone into a lake who can't swim. And so you created that by your purposeful, voluntary human action. And I believe that that gives rise to a positive obligation to care for the child as well. But other than these cases, which are the res all the results of, 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 of voluntarily chosen human action, I don't think there are any positive rights. Wow. So how would uh, the violation of such uh, positive obligation to care for an infant through, say, neglect um, be enforced in the market, do you think? Well, I, I don't know if, there, if it could be. I don't. I mean, I don't think perfect justice is possible. And sometimes uh, an institutional mechanism to enforce some kinds of rights uh, could be worse than the, you know, the harm we're trying to prevent. Abortion may be an example of this. I mean, even if you argue that abortion, at least at a late stage, is some kind of act of murder, the nature of the relationship between the mother and the fetus, and the privacy of that relationship, is such that the only way to prevent it and to you know, to monitor these kinds of things is to basically assume some kind of right to supervise and to monitor and invade the privacy of 
people who presumptively have committed no crime. And you know, theoretically, a woman could become pregnant and abort a child at two months, three months, or without anyone ever knowing she was pregnant. And it's just something that sort of metaphysically she can get away with, right? Now, I'm assuming that it's some type of arguable proto-crime. Um, I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm, 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 it's, okay. it's a gray area to me. But the point is uh, there are some things that you just cannot assume that we can enforce. However, in the case of, of a parent that um, is not fulfilling their obligations to um, to care for their kids, I think that the only realistic enforceable uh, way, way to enforce that would be, number one, to respect the rights of the child to run away or to choose a new guardian, or even the rights of someone else to come in and liberate that child when it becomes uh, presumptively uh, obvious that the child is being so abused that the child would – Good night. The child would pre- – 10 minutes. So the, the child would – you know, we can presume the child would prefer to have a different guardian. Uh, and that is sort of in accord with Rothbard's idea that you know, when the child says, I want to run away, he gets the right to run away. Um, now, and I think I can, I can see a private arbitration agency absolutely. Um, upholding I mean, that. Now, as a practical matter, what's going to happen realistically? You're going to have a cousin or, or a sister or a grandparent or a friend – Who's going to just see what's going on? They're just going to take the law into their own hands. They're going to they're going to risk their lives and they're going to they're going to go steal the child basically. And then the question would be, in some kind of ensuing arbitration, who gets to keep the child? Now, I would say that the you know the liberator gets to keep the child in in in, in a sufficiently egregious case. And um, now, if in the rare case where the parent was wealthy, then I, I suppose that you could. You could actually take some of their assets to support the child until they're 18 or something like that. Um, but as a practical matter, that's almost never going to be the case. The, the, the kind of parent that is is going to abandon the child and is not one of means. Is not going to have means. So it's kind of well. I think that the case is, is it's a theoretical case, and is probably as, as a practical matter probably going to be extremely rare because uh, things like um, marriage and parenthood. Uh, in a in a market society, would very likely have you know prearranged contractual setups in which the 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 parties would have agreed you know yeah. not to engage in abuse or neglect and et cetera et cetera. I'm sure I they wouldn't the, always. But I agree with that. The problem with these these contracts is they can only bind the parties to the contract. They can never bind the child, for example. So let let's say you know a husband and wife agree. That um, you know, you know, if if the wife is abusive, the husband gets the kid. Well, what if the husband's abusive too? Then their their agreement doesn't mean they get to decide for the child who has individual independent individual rights. Um, but their agreement would contain some sort of clause stating that the third party arbitrator will will uh, we we agree to uh, um, submit to the decision of a third party arbitrator as the fate of the child. They could. I mean, they, they could. the contracts already do that. Yeah, they could in that case. But I, I just think that the, the arbitration agreement is only the the sort of pre-stated desires of the parents, and that's only relevant when the parent when the parents' desires is relevant. And sometimes what the parents want is not relevant, right? I mean, if the parents are abusive, let's say, then who cares what they want? I mean, they both want yeah, to keep cares. the kid, but they don't get to. Um, you know, right now in the in the law. Or at least in some states, or at least it was before. I, I was adopted myself, and uh, um, 
in, in Louisiana, and the law in Louisiana based on a civil law jurisdiction was that um, if you're adopted legally, say by a new set of parents, now you have the, this right to inherit from your parents. And in Louisiana, there's something called forced heirship, uh, which means that you have the parents cannot uh, disinherit you. Uh, really? Yeah, you, you have to get what's called a leisure team or a forced portion. And um, actually, so there's no such thing as I disown you in, in under the whole kind of code. Well, the, you can, but there's list, there's enumerated causes. In other words, you can disown someone if they like if you're a parent who if the, if the child strikes you, or if you're in jail and the child refuses to bail you out when they have the ability. So there's 18 causes listed, and if any one of these things, if you do one of these, then your parents can disinherit you if they want to. But if you don't do any one of those things, then you can't be disinherited. Now, actually. This was the law until about 15 years ago, and then the Constitution in Louisiana was changed to um, uh, to permit uh, disinheritance um, at age 23. So hmm. now the law in Louisiana is that um, until the age 23, there's forced heirship. Uh, but anyway, it's an interesting concept because I always thought that there was something slightly libertarian to this in the sense that it sort of recognizes the parent's obligation to care for a child that they brought into the world, right? Um, to, to support this dependent being. Now, whether it should be 23 or forever or what, I don't know. But uh, there's something I like about the idea. But um, anyway, the thing I was mentioning is what the, what the interesting part about it is that um, if, you, if you're adopted by new parents, then you have the right to inherit from them. And in Louisiana, it would be a forced heirship, so you, you have to inherit. But the funny thing is you don't lose the right to inherit from your biological parents. Really? It stays there. Now, technically, one of the causes for disinheritance is if you don't contact your parents for more than two years. So I suppose you could say that the adopted child could be disinherited because they didn't contact their unknown, long-lost biological parents for more than two years because they didn't know who they were. You know, it's not really their fault, but um, and they might not even know they're adopted. But it's interesting that a lot of adopted children, say in, in, in civil law jurisdictions like France and Louisiana and Spain, etc., mm -hmm. uh, if you're adopted, you technically have the right to inherit from two sets Both of parents. Party. Yeah. Very interesting. We've been talking with Stefan Kinsella, libertarian legal theorist. I very much appreciate your time on the show. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. We've gone just over an hour. I don't get to kiss my kids goodnight because they're in Missouri for the month of June. <laughs> So uh, uh, we'll go ahead and end it here. And after you hang up, I'm going to uh, I'm going to dis uh, share some of your bibliography with my listeners. Thanks, thanks again for joining me on the show. Thanks, Gene. Enjoyed it. All right. Good night. Good night. Okay, that was Stefan Kinsella. Very interesting. We didn't really get off topic as much as you might think. Um, this is. Um, this is really why I had him on, because he's an attorney, and he's a patent attorney, and he discusses libertarian legal theory. Uh, things like rights, things like property rights, things like patent law, and things like government-corporate partnerships are kind of what he talks about. And I probably could have asked him a ton more questions if I had had more time to um, to prepare. He agreed to this interview just about 45 minutes before we had it. Uh, those of you who uh, listened in or who are listening in on the podcast, because now that the live streaming portion of this show is uh, over with, 
feel free to email me at gene.bosler at Bartlett, uh, uh, gene.bosler at gmail.com. Stephen Kinsella keeps a blog called stephenkinsella.com. Austro-anarchist libertarian legal theory. Let me read a little bit of what he says here. Statism and the Global Warming Bandwagon by Stephen Kinsella, November 2nd, 2009. Now, note this date. This is kind of when uh, ClimateGate was still in the news and hadn't been, uh, hadn't been conveniently swept under the rug. Um, an edited version of my reply to a global warming alarmist on another thread. Quote, I'm against the state. I'm against junk science. I'm against science used by liberal arts and women's studies majors from Brown who now infest the state to advance their anti-capitalist interests. I believe we are in an interglacial period. I believe the evidence trotted out so far by global warming advocates is spotty and selective and almost always insincere and agenda-driven or driven by pure ignorance. I believe that global warming would probably be good but is not going to happen. I suspect that even if it were happening, and even if it were bad, the cost of stopping it would far exceed its damages, that is, that it's not worth it to stop it, that human survival is more important, ultimately, than environmentalist economics, uh, environmentalist concerns. Moreover, I would never trust the state to make this assessment, or to impose the right regulations to ameliorate the problem. I think that the global warming advocates are not interested in real science or real debate. They wanted to just take their temporary popularity in the polls and among the arts and croissant crowd, among the D.C. jet set board housewives and ditzy Hollywood stars and parlay that as quickly as possible into legislation sponsored by corrupt Pauls like Nancy Pelosi i.e. they just want the win right away as quickly as possible before the public starts to catch on, or yet another pseudoscience fad catches its eye. The primary enemy is the state. Any scheme that involves them is a, uh, as a part of the solution to a posited problem is obviously flawed. I have no wish to cooperate with or endorse that criminal gang's legitimacy. Period. Very good, very interesting. I would point out uh, to Stefan, vis-a-vis his statement, uh, before the public starts to catch on or yet another pseudoscience fad catches its eye, the next pseudoscience fad is here, and it's big, and it is making its way into mainstream media coverage, and that is the fact that overpopulation is going to cause the planet to dry up and destroy the environment, a la Easter Islands. So... Global population control in the form of a worldwide one-child policy, we'll see. It is making its way into mainstream discourse. So I am uh, not a conspiracy theorist. There are people out there positing this. Um, Stefan Kinsella also says... Let's see, where is this? Where are we at? Stephan Kinsella also talks about Howard C. Hayden. 
Stephen Kinsella, physicist, Howard Hayden's one-letter disproof of global warming claims. I should probably read this in a separate podcast because this is really good stuff, but it directly relates to Stephen Kinsella. And when it came out back in October 2009, I read this back then. Uh, Stephen Kinsella, quote, Physicist Howard Hayden, a staunch advocate advocate of sound energy policy, sent me a copy of his letter to the EPA about global warming. The text is also appended below with permission. As noted in my post, Access to Energy, Hayden helped the late great Peter Beckman, or Piotr Beckman, found the dissident physics journal Galilean Electrodynamics, brochures, and further Beckman information here, further dissident physics links here. Hayden later began to publish his own pro-energy newsletter, The Energy Advocate, following in the footsteps of Beckman's own journal, Access to Energy. I love Hayden's email sign-off. Quote, people will do anything to save the world, except take a course in science. End quote. Here's the letter. I read this letter a while back, so I'm particularly interested in this. Um, October 27, 2009, the Honorable Lisa P. Jackson, Administrator, Environmental Protection Agency, 1200 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest Washington, D.C. Dear Administrator Jackson, I write in regard to the proposed endangerment and cause or, con- or contribute findings for greenhouse gases under Section 202A of the Clean Air Act, Proposed Rule 74 Federal Regulation 18,886, April 24, 2009, the so-called endangerment finding. It has been often said that the science is settled on the issue of carbon dioxide and climate. Let me put this claim to rest with a simple one-letter proof that is false. That one letter is S, the one that changes model into models. If the science were settled, there would be precisely one model, and it would be in agreement with measurements. Alternatively, one may ask, which one of the 20-some models settled the science so that all the rest could be discarded along with the research funds that have kept those models alive? We can take this further. Not a single climate model predicted the current cooling phase. If the science were settled, the model, singular, would have predicted it. Let me next address the horror story that we are approaching or have passed a tipping point. Anybody who has worked with amplifiers knows about tipping points. The output goes to the rail. Not only that, but it stays there. That's the official worry coming from the likes of James Hansen of NASA GIS and Al Gore. But therein lies the proof that we are nowhere near a tipping point. The Earth, it seems, has seen times when the carbon dioxide concentration was up to 8,000 parts per million, and that did not lead to a tipping point. If it did, we would not be here talking about it. In fact, seen on the long scale, the carbon dioxide concentration in the present cycle of glacials circa 200 parts per million, and interglacials, circa 300 to 400 parts per million, is lower than it has been for the last 300 million years. 
global warming alarmists tell us that the rising carbon dioxide concentration is A, anthropogenic, and B, leading to global warming. A, carbon dioxide concentration has risen and fallen in the past with no help from mankind. The present rise began in the 1700s, long before humans could have made a meaningful contribution. Alarmists have failed to ask, let alone answer, what the carbon dioxide level would be today if we had never burned any fuels. They simply assume that it would be the pre-industrial value. The solubility of CO2 in water decreases as water warms and increases as water cools. The warming of the Earth since the Little Ice Age has thus caused the oceans to emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. B. The first principle of causality is that the cause has to come before the effect. The historical record shows that climate changes precede carbon dioxide changes. How then can one conclude that carbon dioxide is responsible for the current warming? Nobody doubts that carbon dioxide has some greenhouse effect, and nobody doubts that carbon dioxide concentration is increasing. But what would we have to fear if carbon dioxide and temperature actually increased? A warmer world is a better world. Look at weather-related death rates in winter and summer, and the case is overwhelming that warmer is better. The higher the carbon dioxide levels, the more vibrant is the biosphere, as numerous experiments in greenhouses have shown. But a quick trip to the museum can make that case in spades. Those huge dinosaurs could not exist anywhere on Earth today because the land is not productive enough. Carbon dioxide is plant food, pure and simple. Carbon dioxide is not pollution by any reasonable definition. A warmer world begets more precipitation. All computer models predict a similar temperature gradient between the poles and the equator. Necessarily, this would mean fewer and less violent storms. The melting point of ice is zero degrees Celsius in Antarctica, just as it is everywhere else. The highest recorded temperature at the South Pole is minus 14 Celsius, and the lowest is minus 117 Celsius. How, pray, will a putative few degrees of warming melt all the ice and inundate Florida, as is claimed by the warming alarmists? Consider the change in vocabulary that has occurred. The term global warming has given way to the term climate change because the former is not supported by the data. The latter term, climate change, admits all kinds of illogical attributions. If it warms up, that's climate change. If it cools down, ditto. Any change whatsoever can be said by alarmists to be proof of climate change. In a way, we have been here before. Lord Kelvin proved that the Earth could not possibly be as old as the geologists said. He proved it using the conservation of energy. What he didn't know was that nuclear energy, not gravitation, provides the internal heat of the sun and the earth. Similarly, the global warming alarmists have proved that CO2 causes global warming. Except when it doesn't. To put it fairly but bluntly, the global warming alarmists have relied on a, pan a pathetic version of science in which computer models take precedence over data. 
and numerical averages of computer outputs are believed to be able to predict the future climate. It would be a travesty if the EPA were to countenance such nonsense. Best regards, Howard C. Hayden, Professor Emeritus of Physics, University of Connecticut. All right, that's all I've got, uh, one hour, 15 minutes. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to email me if you have any questions, comments, refutations, arguments, insults. Hurl them. Gene.bosler at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. Good night.